speak to the children of Israel, saying, Appoint out for you cities of refuge, whereof I spake unto you by the hand of Moses, that the slayer that killeth any person unawares and unwittingly may flee thither, and they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood. And when he, have it, and when he that doth flee unto one of those cities shall stand in the entering of the gate of the city, and shall declare his cause in the ears of the elders of that city, they shall take him into the city unto them, and give him a place that he may dwell among them. And if the avenger of blood pursue after him, then they shall not deliver the slayer up into his hands, because he smote his neighbors unwittingly, and hated him not before time. And he shall dwell in that city until he stand before the congregation for judgment, and until the death of the high priest that shall be in those days. Then shall the slayer return and come unto his own city and unto his own house, unto the city from whence he fled. And they appointed Kadesh of Gal in Galilee in Mount Natalah, and Shisham in Mount Ephraim, and Kerjath Arba, which is Hebron, in the mountain of Judah. And on the other side Jordan by Jericho, they assigned Bezer in the wilderness upon the plain out of the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth in Gilead out of the tribe of Gad, and Golan and Basham out of the tribe of Manasseh. And the, <clears throat> and the Lord gave them rest. Excuse me. There, these were the cities appointed for all the children of Israel, and for the stranger that sojourneth among them, that whosoever killeth any person at unawares might flee thither and not die by the hand of the avenger of blood until he stood before the congregation. Now this is a reading of a historical account back in the book of Joshua concerning the things we wish to speak about tonight. And at this time, let us go to God in prayer. Old Testament that have future significances are always interesting. When that long 40-year period was drawing to a close, Moses began to prepare the children of Israel for the time when they would cross over the river Jordan and settle down in their promised land and peace. One of the things he told them was the arrangement that God would have for their protection in the giving of these cities. Now, when Moses finally climbed the mount and uh, gave out his breath into the arms of God and Joshua assumed the leadership, they came to the verge of the Jordan River and camped there for quite a while. Just before crossing on over, uh, Joshua renewed this thing to the children of Israel. So it's very important. It's very, very uh, 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 important concerning their welfare and their well-being in this future land. Now, he was going to give them some cities. He would distribute them appropriately proportionally throughout the land so that it would be for their protection. Now, the reason for this is, under God's system, anybody who slew someone, the next of kin could slew him, could slay him, rather. And that's the way God's checks and balances went along. But now then, to take care of the uh, uh, situation, he also arranged for these cities to be built so that a man who unwittingly and unpurposefully, in other words, accidentally slew a neighbor, a friend, a fellow worker, or whatever, he could flee to one of these cities and enter it and settle down there if he were accepted, and there he would be freed from his uh, pursuer. That's God's checks and balances about this matter we see here. Now, this was an interesting thing. Now, this is uh, interesting just as it stands in the Old Testament. To read that is extremely uh, important and uh, uh, informative. But not only is that the case, but these cities also had a futuristic importance. These cities look forward with prophetic fingers to the great city of refuge that Jesus Christ would establish upon this earth called the church. And uh, I think that's what Paul had in his eye when he wrote what he did. Over here we find, uh, he says, who hath fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before you. That's what those people did. And Paul had reference to the great institution of God, the church, when he said that. Are in Jesus Christ, which is, of course, uh, 
uh, the uh, owner of the church, and the church is his body, his spiritual body. So then we can see how this all ties in. But not only is that the case, but someone has uh, uh, helped us to understand that each one of these cities, each name, in other words, has a meaning that reflects some virtue or principle that is to guide the people within that church that we are a member of tonight. Now, when we look at it from that standpoint, we can see that this certainly not, is not an idle uh, research or study that we do on this question. So I would like to just go through this tonight and point out some of the vital things that are very important to us meant by these very names of the cities. So first we're going to talk about Kadesh. Uh, it was situated, and uh, the word I'm told means holy. Holy. Well, certainly the church is a holy institution, and it certainly does picture the church because the Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter 2 and 9, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation. So that certainly pictures the church. A peculiar people, he continues, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So then, as this word means holy, it pictures the fact that the church is a holy institution. And we are uh, uh, overwhelmed to understand that. Now, the word holy itself suggests the idea here of set apart. Holiness right here does not refer to the fact that it is absolutely, completely, and wholly without sin. That's not, not the idea conveyed right here. But right here it means set apart, which, of course, would be without sin if you could live up to its standards. But the main reading is to set it apart. Now, these cities were certainly set apart, and uh, they were set apart so much so till they were the ones that were ordained for people to find protection in. Well, then the great city of refuge, which is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, is a holy nation, and it is set apart too. Well, the word holy does mean that. In 2 Corinthians 6 and 12, the apostle Paul conveying this idea right here says, Wherefore come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Now, there's an idea of the people of the church coming out from among somebody, coming out from among the worldly people, from the people of sin, the people of, of degradation and ruin, come out from among them. And, of course, that's what the word church in its original language means, I'm told. Uh, ecclesia, or as the modern new scholars nowadays and our young preachers likes to call it ecclesia. So however you want to picture it, it's okay with me. That's the meaning of it, and of course that means called out. Called out. That's what the word church itself even means, even apart from the word holiness, which is to be separate, because we read in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. So then, we in the church today are supposed to be just like those people were back there, called out, a separate people, apart from other people, a distinct people. Now, some folks don't like that idea and don't like that concept of God's people today. They think we're isolationist, as you would be, as you would consider it in the political realm. But we are isolationist, if you please. And until we accept that fact, we're going to never be the powerful, moving movement that God wants us to be. Now, some folks' idea and some preachers' ideas are that the church is to be a lovable, likable people who mingle with everybody, who gets along with everybody, and then we tell them, I'm a member of the Church of Christ. Come over and be with us because we're no different from you. We just worship different, you see. But really, we're like you. We partake of the same clubs and the same organizations, and, and we dress like you folks dress, and we talk like you folks talk, and we live like you folks live and everything. So really, we are not too much different, and the church will grow like that because everybody will like the church, you see, and we'll grow to be a great movement for the Lord in this land. There's nothing in the world that's more wrong than that. 
Now that is just as wrong. That's the concept that the devil is whispering in the ears of people tonight because when you have done that to this city right here, you've prostrated it into nothingness. That's what you've done. It doesn't matter how big a congregation is, how stylish the people are, how rich, how well-to-do, how many rings they've got on their fingers or what. Let me tell you one thing. If you are not a separate people from the world, the church of Christ is not going to amount to a hill of beans in the community because they're not going to, they're not going to uh, 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 accept the fact that we are anybody different from them. You know, the more different you are from a thing, the farther you are from a thing, the more they're going to notice you. If you're mingling with them, they're not going to notice you because you're one of them. But when you're a different person and when you manifest some differences, when your separateness and your apartness is recognized, they're going to look across over yonder and see a people over yonder who are so uh, unlike them till they're going to be impressed. And that's the idea that the Lord wants his church to convey to the world. We are a set-apart people. And that's the way the people were back in that day. God wanted his people to be a separate people. When they cease to be a separate people, when they begin to intermarry with the other people, when they begin to uh, 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 go up and uh, uh, partake of their ways, the children of Israel became a nobody. And God was so displeased with them until he finally led them into captivity. So now that's a shadow of what we're supposed to be like today. Also we find John 15 and 9 where Jesus said, If ye were of the world, the world would love its own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hated you, hateth you. You know, I would like for some people to explain to me just what the Apostle Paul is talking about when he says that you are not of the world. Well, some people's view that they hold today tell me what he's talking about when he says his church is not of the world. We know he's not talking about necessarily adultery, fornication, thief, theft, things like that. That's a crime. That's even a crime to the civil governments. He's not talking about that. We reprobate when we do that. But he's talking about that thing that makes God's people look more like the world than they look like Christ. And whatever it is that makes you look more like the world than it makes you look like Christ is worldly. And uh, we should abandon it. We certainly should. John 17 and 14, they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. That's what the apostle, or uh, rather that's what the Lord said in his prayer. And run Romans 12 and 2, Paul said, and be not conformed to this world. Be not conformed to this world. Don't be fashioned after this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your minds. But we go on. We could talk on that for a long time, but we move on to the next one. We have another word here, shisham. And somebody told me that that meant simply shoulder. Shoulder. Well, what on earth does shoulder have to do with it? That's almost smileable when you think about it in a way. And I was certainly somewhat mildly amused when I read that that means shoulder. Well, when we come to look at it, though, we see a, a good point there. When you think of a shoulder, you think of support. A shoulder is an object of support. We talk about a movement. We talk about a profession we're in. We talk about a work that we're engaged in. And we, somebody gets up with an impassioned plea and says, you know, we've got to all put our shoulder to the wheel. We've got to put our shoulder to the wheel to get this thing moving, you see. It's a support. Well, the church is a support. Support of what? Support of the gospel. Because the church is supposed to be that instrument which promotes the gospel throughout the world. And it is. And I might say that it's our only support. Now, our people today don't know anything about missionary societies, and they don't know anything about various clubs and things of that, though we're, we, we, we like our little clubs and things pretty much in the church if we just admit it. But there was a, a movement of the, uh, uh, of the restoration movement which adapted the system of forming a particular and separate organization to put the gospel throughout the world. That was separate and apart from the church. 
Now, we don't think that's right. We don't believe that's right. That's what caused the Christian church and the Church of Christ to become two different entities. One of the things, at least. Now, we believe that the church is the support of the truth. And we believe it's the only support of the truth. And that's what that word even indicates right there, that that church yonder is a support. Not some club, not some organization made out of the church, but the church itself is the support. The church then gets the glory, not the international missionary society, but the church. We don't send delegates across the country to have one vast meeting yonder in Cincinnati somewhere where everybody gets together. And, well, now, what shall we do? Shall we send our delegates to Kenya or shall we send it to uh, Yugoslavia? Where up goes the hands, you know, voting. We don't do that in the church. Each local congregation has its own support. It sends its missionary here and its preacher yonder and so on and so forth locally. And when you abridge that, you're treading on dangerous grounds because you have not allowed the church to be the support of the truth as the Bible would have it to be. Paul said in 1 Timothy 3, 3 and 15 that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, that word ground means support, you see. And I think of two arches standing up here, two huge, divinely built arches that holds up the truth. That's the church. Now, this word uh, pillar is, is pillar, you notice. It's not pillow. Some folks would read it. The church is the pillar and the pillow and ground of the truth because that's all they've done on the church in their life is recline and rest and repose and sleep. The church is not that. We've got too many people today who are asleep in the church and they're using it for a pillow. Well, it's not a pillow. And those people who've never done one single solitary thing for the church in their life, they've never supported the preacher, they've never helped with the congregation, they've never prayed for the work, they've never done anything, are using the church for a pillow. But it's a pillar, and it's a, and it's a support of the truth. The church is the only support, too, I want to point out again, with all emphasis, in the only way you look at it, the church is the only support. That's the reason why we don't have Sunday schools tacked onto our churches today because it's the business of the church to teach the people. It's the church that does that. We do it in a corporate fashion where people stand up and address the church. That was the way it was done in, at the church in Corinth and the Paul regulated it that way. And he said, when you all come together, so that's what we do, we come together as a church. We don't split up into various organizations that had its concept with Robert Rakes in London, England, when he built a little system called a Sunday school, and that's where it came from, and our digressive brethren needn't try to deny it. That's what it is. I don't care what you call it. But the church is the only support for the truth, for the teaching, for the word, and any way you look at it. Other people have support groups, they call it. They'll have a room in their church plant, and that's for the, uh, a support group. If you've had sorrows, if you've had uh, some problem, if you've had some uh, untoward uh, illness or something of the kind, you report to this support group, and it usually has a, a leader, a president, or a chairman, or something of the kind, and you go down to that support group, and they, uh, they flutter around over you and do this and do that for you, and they do some good things. I'm not denying that. But the system is wrong. The church is our support group. And when there's a death in the congregation, when there's an overwhelming sorrow that takes the, uh, love, takes the activity out of some of our people, we don't put them off in a support group. We rally around them as a church because the church is the support. And we give them the love and the care and the needs that they uh, are, are seeking at that time as a congregation and as a support. But there's another way that the word shoulder can be used, and that's the word comfort. We don't need another comfort group either because the church is the most comforting group that there is in all the world. And in this particular regard, we surround our members who fall by the wayside, who have their problems and cares and troubles, and we comfort them. 
We're their comfort group. That's what we're supposed to do. Uh, the Apostle Paul says that through uh, that we through the comforts and patience of, patience and comfort of the Scripture might have hope. And you know that's the only way you re get real comfort. Now we uh, we do the other necessities if we need to and if we have to, but you're not going to comfort people in a substantial way until you have administered to them the only hope there is in this life, and that is the Word of God. You know, I've been to many a funerals. I preach many a funerals, and I, I stand by open caskets, and I see people come up and look at their loved ones, and they just become overwhelmed, and you know the first thing they do, they fall on somebody's shoulder. It's just an it's just innate thing that people do. They fall on somebody's what? Their shoulder, because that's their comfort. That's their comfort. And we comfort them in that way. The church is a great big old shoulder, as it were, to comfort all those who are in need. And that's our uh, support group. That's what we do. The church is the support. But we go on to the next thought right here. And we notice uh, Hebron. Hebron means alliance. Alliance. Smith's Bible Dictionary says that's the idea, and it carries with it the, the idea of fellowship, our partnership, our cooperation. And certainly that's what the church does within its Within its confines, we have cooperation, and we have fellowship, and we have uh, uh, our work is mutual, and our cares and concerns are mutual. Now, we, uh, we have joint participation with one another in the congregation. We all work together, and no congregation is going to ever amount to much unless its members all work together. And if there's a project that the church undertakes and institutes, instigates everybody must work together in it and there must be cooperation in it then if there's the need to spread the gospel down yonder somewhere and there's always a need to spread the gospel down yonder somewhere we have cooperation in it because the church sends some godly man down yonder to preach the gospel to those people while the people stay at home and work and make a living and make money and put it into the church treasure and they support that man there's cooperation you see the most beautiful aspect of cooperation and i sometimes think our members the members who are left behind fail to grasp the wonderful feature that you perform in that work when greg gay go a uh, greg uh, Degolf, this is the Greg I'm talking about over here tonight. When he goes to Russia or when he goes to Africa or wherever else, anybody else, and he does something worthwhile over there, you folks right back at home have just as much to do with that as he does. He's just the mouth for you. He's just the hands for you. But you're going into your pockets and you're bringing it out and you're putting it into the church treasure and you are his support, his, uh, and you cooperate with him now the apostle paul looked at it that way and that's the way the apostle paul labored he didn't have some separate and apart institution and he didn't go out all alone either throughout the land you know i've never seen one of these deals work in my life where somebody's going to get rich and then go preach the gospel and not charge the church anything i've heard of a few of those and they fell just like the autumn leaves first place that would be all right I suppose if you could do that, I wouldn't have any serious objections. In fact, I'd compliment you for spending your money that way. But God's main arrangement is to have cooperation with the congregation. And you, you put your money in and let the church take care of it. And then you let the church send you, and you've got cooperation there. You've got partnership there. That's the way it is. Paul was that way. I guess Paul's favorite congregation was the little church at Philippi, or the big church. I don't really know how old it, what, big it was, but the church at Philippi, I guess, was Paul's favorite congregation. I know Paul was their favorite preacher, all right. When all the other churches abandoned the Apostle Paul, and when there was a rumor went out that he wasn't real, he really wasn't uh, a full-fledged apostle, his apostleship became in question and in doubt, some of the churches became somewhat affected with that. Corinth did, but not Philippi. Philippi sent to him all the time. Philippi just kept sending it. That church looked back and remembered the time when that man came down there by the help of God and started their church for them and laid his life on the line for them. 
One of his Pauline epistles is Philippians. And he's writing from a dungeon cell now to the little church down in Philippi. Years have passed. And I want to read these words that he writes. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. That's a touching thought. That's a pretty thought. Every remembrance. Paul had remembrances of his first work in Philippi. They got down there on that Sabbath day, you know, with Silas. There was no synagogue for him to go out and preach to the Jews then. But he did hear of some ladies who went down yonder on the creek bank somewhere and had prayer. So he went out to town and went down there on the creek bank and sat down with these ladies and taught them the word of God, taught them the gospel. There was an, a, a lady in the midst by the name of Lydia. She was from the distant town of Thyatira and was a seller of purple. It's not really determined yet what that was, whether it was a purple dye she sold or whether it was purple material, cloth material. Some think it's the latter. But at any rate, she was, you might say, on a mission from her home, but was residing now in this city. But she was a devout woman, and since there was no synagogue, being a Jewish lady, she went out with some more ladies and sat down and had prayer on the riverbank. Paul went out and preached to them. That's the first time they ever heard the story of a little baby being born and laid in a manger of a virgin with a overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit. Their womanly heart went right out to that story, and Paul, I know, brought that story right on up, and he led right on up. People weren't as uh, 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 restless back in those days as they are today. I don't know how long he preached, but anyway, he preached, led it right on up till he preached the gospel. He told, I'm satisfied about the death of that one on Calvary's cross, how he was buried, how he rose again the third day, and how now his message is, for you to obey the gospel that you might be saved, well, it struck their heart. It struck its target, and they were, she was baptized that day. Well, I think right there in that river where they were sitting, that was certainly a good place. Yeah. Well, you know, right after that then, Paul was put in prison, and Silas, for preaching downtown. They had commanded them to not preach anymore in that name, and he went on preaching it anyway. And you know how they were finally arrested how they were brought up and put in a Roman jailhouse, and how they were in that jailhouse, the newest inmates of that prison. Their record was really not too well known, except they were preaching something about a man called Jesus, whom the Romans thought was more or less a fable than anything else. But God zeroed in on that jailhouse that night and shook its foundations and flung its windows open at another event like it has never been heard tell of upon earth. The invisible God, hands of God flung around that jailhouse and held every prisoner there that night, though their chains were unshackled. And that jailer, thinking that it was jailbreak or that there was some confusion, came running in, about to kill himself with his sword, too, because he knew he'd be killed in the morning anyway, and he's going to beat him to the draw. And Paul shouted out in the middle of that darkness and took control and said, Do thyself no harm, for we're all here. That was good news to that jailer. And it was so impressive till the Bible says he came running in. He sprang in is the way the Bible put it. He didn't come easing and tippy-toeing around, but he sprang in and fell down at the feet of these men. Why did he come to these men, do you suppose? There were some old prisoners around in there that he had known for years probably, and he knew them a lot better than he did these new men. I'll tell you why. These men never had been in that jailhouse before. And that jailhouse never had acted like that before. So he puts the action of that jailhouse somehow in connection with these two men. And he was so right. So he flung himself down at their feet and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Well, you know the story. Paul took him that night and Silas and baptized him and all of his house. We got some new members of the church in Philippi. So a little church was established. We don't know how many more. Paul left, but they came back by. Now years have passed and gone. I don't know where Lydia is today. Maybe she's an old lady still down there at uh, Philippi, occupying a very special place in their heart and in the congregation. Don't know where the jailer is. He's probably disposed of his job by now. Maybe he's on pension now. I don't know if they had pensions. Probably didn't. But at any rate, he's a member of the church, and by this time, They've got children and grandchildren in, and the church has grown down at Philippi. And they're 
they're strong enough now to send Paul some support and be a partner with him and an alliance with him of preaching the gospel. So he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day. See, that's what he was talking about. From the first day till now. But again, he writes in chapter 4, 15, and 16, Now ye Philippians, know also that in the beginning, there it is, going right back to the beginning, that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessities. There's a beautiful case of cooperation between the congregations and between the preacher. And he was sending it directly to the preacher, too. I won't tell you there was no in-between treasure. No in-between organization, either. And that's the way it's to be done today. So that's what the word means, I think. We have our cooperation with one another. We have our partnership, our fortress. Never been another one like it. The church is a strong fortress against the powers of evil. Jesus said, or Paul said, other foundations can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, there are some very, very impressive organizations in this world tonight. They have great power. They have great prestige. Their names are talking about on the televisions and on the radios and when they have their conferences and their associations. Thousands upon thousands of delegates gather in New Orleans or, or in Cincinnati or San Francisco, wherever. And the news media takes notice of that because it's a mighty organization. But the difference in that and the church that is pictured right here by this one is the fact that it doesn't have any kind of a foundation. Jesus' church is the only one that has him for a foundation. And Paul says other foundations can no man lay. It doesn't matter how great the superstructure is. The building's not going to amount to a hill of beans unless it's on the right kind of foundation. And Jesus Christ is the foundation of his church and his church only. Jesus Christ is the foundation of his institution and no other institution in this world is Jesus Christ the founder of. So it is a strong church. It is a fortress. No wonder Martin Luther, the great German writer, could write the hymn that we like to sing that such a moving, moving piece, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. That's right. And that's what the church is. It really is. There's no building nor institution any stronger than its foundation, as I've said. Those people who build million-dollar homes up on clefts and so on and so forth that are so imposing and so beautiful and so impressive. They just wait for one of these big rains to come and they all just wash off right down in the holler, you know. Look like they'd learn some sense someday. You've got to have a foundation, you know. Up in North Carolina, when I was getting up this very little sermon, in fact, the business that week, they'd had a big flood up there and the University of North Carolina, part of it was just flooded out. And an engineer went down there and said, well, don't you folks know you've got to put a good foundation under this thing down here? You have got to put a good foundation under a building, under an institution. And, and God put a good foundation under his church when he built it. And that foundation is Jesus Christ. There's nothing that is that the forces of evil fear as much as they do the church of the Lord. And you know, I have a belief tonight that if every member of the church lived right, up to the, lived right up to the standard, if we all did everything we were supposed to do, there's nothing that could stop the church. Communism, humanism, modernism, any other ism that ought to be a wasm, as the man said, couldn't stand against the church because the church is the, is the institution of God never forget a year I held a meeting out in Denver. The church had divided out there, and we were meeting in an in a empty store building out there, glass all around it. We had just about as much privacy as a goldfish in a living room. That's, and uh, so I went down, I had Glenn Osborne to go down, and we got some butcher paper and, and papered that thing all around so at least we could have a 
little privacy in there. I was afraid one of those wackos was going to just shoot the top of my bald head off like I've heard them doing before, so I wanted a little privacy in that thing. Next door to us, there was a, a, a man running a liquor store. It was a fine liquor store, pretty. Had big, pretty signs with half-naked girls standing out drinking it, you know, and that's what you've got to have today, you know. And so all of our fine young people would come out on the street and stand around, and, and his business got kind of dull, and he was standing out there too one night at the door. He said, hey, what y'all got going on over there? I said, a gospel meeting. He said, a what? I said, a, a gospel meeting. He said, what's that? And I told him, I said, and that's not all. I'm going to shut you down before this meeting's over. He said, well, why would you want to do that? I said, because you've got a damnable drink in there that you're selling that tears up homes and runs boys and girls to hell. That's why. Well, of course, I didn't shut him down. You might know that. But at any rate, it did impress him, I'll have to say. The church is a powerful institution, and the workers of iniquity are afraid of it. Don't you ever doubt it. The forces of denominationalism and error are afraid of the church. The Bible says the wicked fleeth when no man pursueth, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. And that's right, too. I remember that Jesus said in Matthew 15 and 13, Other plants which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. But over in Matthew 16 and 18, he said, Upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And the gates of hell didn't prevail against it because the dark, dark forces of hell and of evil captured the Son of God and nailed him to a Roman cross, and they walked around that cross that day laughing and scoffing and mocking and jeering, and they thought they had whipped the whole business. But they didn't know. They buried that man, and he came out again. As William Cullen Bryant says, truth crushed to earth shall rise again. The eternal years, eternal truth, uh, years are hers, but every wounded rise in pain and dies among her worshipers. And that's right. The church cannot be stopped. It will out. So we're interested in that particular city, too, and the meaning of it. We come on and we mention next Ramoth. You know, these places are still heard of over yonder, and you still hear them mentioned on your radio, you know, every once in a while. It's interesting. Ramoth, that means height and elevation. No institution, no building is as high as the church. Oh, no, no. They may have spires on their domes, and they may have this, that, and the other, but there's no church as high as the Lord's church because it is exalted above all things. Jesus said, speaking of it in Matthew 5 and 14, ye are the light of the world, a city that is, cannot be hid. In my travels many times, I've come into cities and a long distance away I could see the city out yonder, beautiful, beautiful uh, uh, situation. I could see it, and I, I would think of God's eternal city sitting upon a hill that nothing in this world can hide. No man can hide it, and no force can take it. Well, there is no institution on earth that is so elevated in God's estimation and the estimation of all reasonable thinking people as God's church. There are many organizations, commercial, political, social, religious, of international prestige, but the church has the most exalted power of all. No wonder David could say in Psalms 48 and 12 when he contemplated the Zion of the Old Testament, which was a figure of the Zion of the New Testament that Paul spoke about in the 12th chapter of the book of Hebrews, when he said, walk about Zion, go round about her, tell the towers thereof, mark ye well her bulwarks, Consider her palaces, that you may tell it to the generations to follow. Now, that's the church. But Golan, we mentioned Golan next and last this evening. That means circle. Circle. Well, circle means complete. A circle is complete, and that's what the church is. Colossians 2 and 10 says, And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Now, why did Paul write that statement right there? We mentioned that Sunday morning, I believe, in, in our sermon. But I want to mention it again in connection with this thought right here. Paul was writing to the church at Colossae because it was being disturbed by those Jewish 
agitators from Jerusalem who wanted to come down there and affix circumcision to their belief and their worship. They followed on Paul's heels everywhere he went. And they didn't care if they'd become a member of the Lord's church, the new institution, if they would allow them to inject circumcision and the tenets of Moses' law in with it. That's what they wanted to do, and they would be satisfied. And Paul called them uh, evil workers and said, uh, let no uh, uh, men deceive you with the philosophies of men and so on and so forth. And he goes on to say, and you are complete in him, which is the head of all principalities and powers. They were teaching that you had to have this other or you wouldn't be complete. In fact, that was their argument to the Colossian brethren. I know you've done all right now. You, this is okay. But now if you want to be complete, you've got to put this in. Paul said, no way. You are complete in him right where you stand under Christ, which is the head of all principalities and powers, he said. And also in Ephesians 1, 22, where he says, and he is the head over all things to the body. Not Moses, but Christ. And you keep it that way too because you can't add anything to it. If you do, it won't be complete. Well, we're not bothered with circumcision tonight in the church. We're not bothered with animal sacrifices tonight in the church, but we are bothered with a lot of other things. And there are a lot of people who are dissatisfied and unsatisfied with God's plain, simple arrangement of things in his church. But they don't seem to know because they're too worldly-minded and they're too interested in the elaborate things of life. They're more interested in the novel things of life than they are godly things. They think you've got to have all of these worldly attractions attached to the church in order to make it complete. But today we still say, as Paul did, you're complete in him. Just as it was laid down and just as it was built. That's the reason why we don't have any additions to the Lord's church. I was talking to a man one time. In fact, he was a member of the Greek Orthodox Church. He was a, a Lebanese. I was talking to him in, in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. I never forget it. Or rather, Charleston, West Virginia, excuse me. And we were talking, and he was telling me about the church that he was a member of. He said, we're the closest to the Bible of any church there is. I said, whoa, I want to call your hand right there. And I went to tell him things that they had. I said, now, where are you going to find that in the Bible? Oh, well, these things don't matter. I said, but it just goes to prove that you are not closer to the Bible than the Lord's church that I'm a member of. I said, where we worship down there is so plain. We're so close to the Bible. We're so plain. We're so complete. Till you'd be bored to death in it. You wouldn't last a service. And that's the reason why a lot of folks are not in the Church of Christ tonight is because there's not enough things in there to attract their worldly-minded attention. They've got to have a parade going on all the time. They've got to have something uh, to flag along their drooping spirits, as Alexander Camel said when he was talking about instrumental music in the church. Well, that's the way it is. <clears throat> Ephesians 1 and 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. So we don't need any more. And we read that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Right there in the Scriptures. That's the reason why we don't have a human creed. That's the reason why we don't have anything but the Bible is because it furnishes us with everything we need. And if there's something we're practicing that's not found in there, we don't need it, and it's to our destruction. The best way I know to explain it, Bible schools, Sunday schools, Bible societies, missionary societies, youth groups, church retreats, you name them. Now, having mentioned all of this, I want to go into another phase here before I'm through tonight. I want to notice some facts about these cities as they relate to the Lord's church. The way to these cities were made accessible, and it was the commandments of God's law that they keep a road crew out, keeping the roads up, up to these cities. I hope they're better than some of ours today, but they had a road crew out that kept the road smooth. 
that kept it straight. Because when this man had slain a fella, he didn't have time to stand around and want to know now what's the best road down yonder. He had to get it on right down that road because there's a man right behind him. And if that man caught him, he was killed. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that's just, that's just comparative of the fact that the devil's right on your heels. He's as a great roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, and he's after you. And there's just one thing you can find refuge, as Paul said, flee for the hope that is set before us right there in that church, in the church of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 2 and 2 and 3 tells us the way. He said, Come ye and let us go up to the house, go up to the mountain, to the house of uh, Jacob, to the mountain of the Lord's house. There it is. God has given us support, or rather signposts and guides to tell us the way. Yeah, along the road, they had signs pointing. Did you know that? Beezer. I don't know if they said how many miles it was down there, but at any rate, they had signboards because you couldn't come to an intersection and think, well, now I better go over here and ask Mr. Jones, is this the way down to Beezer down yonder? I'm a little mixed up on the road over here. No, you don't have time for that because there's another man may be right behind you, after you. So the sign just said Beezer, and you just kept going. Well, God has given us signposts and guide. Psalms 119 and 105, David said, Thy word, O Lord, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And that's the surest map you can find anywhere. The whole Bible is a signpost. The Old Testament tells that Jesus Christ would come, and the four Gospels tells us that he did come and that he died for our sins. The Acts of the Apostles continues the history of conversion and tells us what to do to be saved and how to get into that city down yonder. And the epistles tells us how to live in that city the rest of our life, as long as we're here on this world. Revelations tells us of the benefits that we're going to gain by living in that city. These cities were reached from all parts of the country. Three of them were on one side of Jordan and three of them on the other side of Jordan for those two and a half tribes that were allowed to stay over there, you see. And from any part of the country, they could find access to these cities. Well, from anywhere in the world, you can find access to the Lord's church right here. Because in Matthew 28 and 19, the scripture said, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. These cities were supplied with water and all of their physical needs so that they didn't have to go outside that city because it's dangerous to go outside that city seeking some need. Because when you go outside that city, that man may be lurking right on the outside, and it was his privilege to get you and kill you if you walk right outside that gate. So you better stay in the city. Now, that's the way it is over here. All spiritual blessings are in Christ Jesus, and as I said, not one thing we need outside the church. You tell me what it is. So we stay inside the church because God has ordained it so. Ephesians 1 and 3. Well, the gates of these cities stood open day and night. And that's remarkable because all the cities of that day were walled cities. And at nighttime, the great, huge, ponderous gates were shut too. But not these cities. God ordained that these gates stay open so that that man could come running in at 12 o'clock at midnight, 3 o'clock in the morning. He could come flying into the gate and find refuge. Well, the gates of this city has been opened ever since the day of Pentecost. And there's no such thing as opening the door of the church. You don't hear that today. But when I started preaching, the denominations would say, well, we're going to open the doors of the church tonight. We told them that the doors of the Lord's church stood open all the time, that it was opened on the day of Pentecost, and it won't be shut until the day of judgment. That's when the doors of the Lord's church would be shut. I can't shut it because I'm not big enough. I'm not great enough. In fact, Revelation 3 and 7 says, I am he that openeth, and no man shutteth. That's what's said of Jesus Christ, who's the builder of that city, that church, if you please. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7 says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord. And I will have mercy upon him, saith the Lord, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon and then you know nobody's turned down. 
in that city. In some denominations, and I've got an old creed I carried around with you for the purpose of showing people this, the most prominent denomination in America, this side of the Catholic Church, has this creed. It says, no man shall be received as a member of this church to whose admission five members object. Now, they might deny it today, but it's right there in their creed. In other words, when the uh, directors of, the, of their church get together, when the board meets and they bring this man in to try to see if he's a fit member of the church, if this man has something in his past that's objectionable, if he's done something to one of these men and there's some animosity against him, five men could stand up and that thrust him out of the church and he couldn't begin. And I'll tell you, that's not the case with the Lord's city, with the city of refuge. Jesus said, he that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. That's the difference. And you don't, I don't add him to the church anyway, and I don't kick him out of the church. Because we read in Acts 2 and 47 where the record says that they were added to the church daily, such as should be saved, or such as were being saved. That's the difference in man and God. Well, in conclusion, can't you see that since these cities have been built, casting the ideas and the lessons that they give us today, having their fulfillment resolved in this institution right here, we can see that heaven has done everything for man's benefit and for man's salvation and for man's refuge from sin and from evil. There's nothing else for God to do. Now, I don't get down and pray God to save me tonight and do this. All I do is just get in that city. Just do the things that puts me in that city because that's God's arrangement for me. All things are ready. The gates are always open. And if you are lost, it's your fault. It's certainly not God's. Will you flee for refuge tonight? Will you not just be almost persuaded, but altogether, as Paul said? Suppose a man had come to one of these cities and he just stopped at the outside gate here and stood. He almost made it, didn't he? Well, as Mr. Bliss said in his song, almost cannot avail, almost is but to fail, sad, sad, that bitter wail, almost but lost. We don't want to be almost, but we want to make sure that we are all together redeemed and accepted in the Lord's city. Am I talking to one tonight who's never become a member of the Lord's church? We'll give you that opportunity while we stand and while we sing. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.